0: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's been a story which, for weeks now, has been unfolding in the Sunday Times about a former prime minister working for a private financial outfit. It's taken us to Whitehall and to Westminster. And the latest instalment surrounds leaked emails sent last spring by David Cameron to senior civil servants, lobbying on behalf of
1: Greensill Capital. We would like to introduce you to Bill Crothers, a fellow board member and member of the exec team. Bill worked in the cabinet office during the coalition years, leading the government's procurement and commercial agenda. Why don't you have a chat with him? The emails provide detail of how Cameron used his
0: contacts and influence to open the door for Greensill to slip through and partner with public bodies, in this case, the NHS.
1: This ended up being a kind of centrepiece of this grand project to embed themselves um, into the NHS and get access to lots of employees and their data and you know they had help from others along the way not only cameron but also matt hancock you're listening to stories of our times
0: from the times and the sunday times i'm david aronovich today david cameron and the toxic banker part three a pay app for the nhs this is part three in our coverage of the green affair so if you've not listened to parts one and two and you can do Over the course of parts one and two, you'll recall we told the tale of Lex Greensill, an Australian banker who struck up a relationship with Sir Jeremy Hayward, once the country's most senior civil servant, while Hayward was working for a while in the private sector. When Hayward returned to public service, he gained entry for Greensill into Downing Street, there to sell the concept of something called supply chain finance which the government of the then Prime Minister David Cameron adopted to help speed up payment to pharmacists. A few years later, Cameron left Downing Street after losing the Brexit referendum and wound up working for Greensill. Our guide throughout all of this has been...
1: Gabriel Pogrand, the Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent. A Whitehall
0: correspondent
1: that has had a lot of white-hauling in the last few weeks. There's been a lot of Whitehalling in the last few weeks. I will say this story is not bound by Whitehall. We do have marshmallows over the campfire in Saudi Arabia and a banker from Bundaberg in Queensland. But the locus of the story is in Whitehall, and it's about the life and times of a man called Lex Greensill and his relationship with David Cameron. Since we last discussed David Cameron and the Greensill affair on this podcast last
0: week... A few things have happened.
1: The first is that David Cameron, after I think it was 36 days of silence, finally said something about his work for this finance to elect Greensill. He said he hadn't done anything wrong. He said that if he could have done things differently, he might have done specifically with respect to his texting the Chancellor Rishi Sunak on behalf of Greensill. Secondly,
0: after initially rejecting Labour's
1: calls for an inquiry into the affair, the government felt as though there were going to be more and more stories sucking in more and more cabinet ministers, and so it was then that Boris Johnson announced an independent, or what he characterised as an independent inquiry, into Lex Greenhill and his relationship with government since two thousand and eleven to be led by a former solicitor at Slaughter and May, a man called Nigel Boardman. With Johnson saying of the Boardman inquiry...
0: I've given him, a, you know,
1: pretty much carte blanche to uh, ask anybody whatever he needs to, to find out. And just to round it up, since then, a number of select committees have launched inquiries of their own on matters ranging from the specifics of Cameron's lobbying and Greensill acquiring government help as he sought to insert himself into a COVID emergency scheme, all the way to kind of broader questions about this man's presence in and around government over the last decades.
0: Cameron's statement came after a month's silence on the affair. But recent events have reminded watchers of something Cameron was very animated about in 2010. It's the next big scandal waiting to happen.
1: It's an issue that, frankly, crosses party lines and has tainted our politics for too long. It's an issue that exposes the far too cosy relationship between politics, government, business and money. I'm talking about lobbying. Cameron himself has still not spoken. And critically, one thing that we've not done, us at the Sunday Times, but also us as media, the Fourth State more generally, is we've not actually been able to question Cameron, you know, face to face in the form of an interview in print or in broadcast. So Cameron has so far only answered this question on his own terms. He said that he is looking forward to answering the questions of select committees in due course. And his spokesperson has said that he'll engage with that. And I'd also add that the inquiry at the centre of this, the Boardman Inquiry, does not, as per an interview given by George Eustace over the weekend, have any special powers. I don't know that it can summon him or compel him to provide evidence. So there are lots of known unknowns, but Cameron has spoken a little more. He's given us a little more information than he's promised that will give us a lot more information in time. We should just say that George Eustace is a cabinet
0: minister who was extremely close to David Cameron in the past. And have we
1: heard from Lex Greensill? And I suspect I know what your answer is going to be. All the key figures in this tale have their own reasons for not engaging and they might be credible. Greensill's spokesperson says that he can't say anything because... Grant Thornton, the auditors are winding up his company and trying to unravel all of these complex financial instruments that he sold to investors. And his speaking will not help and could, in fact, harm that process. So they say, even if you wanted to, he couldn't comment publicly. So this weekend, we had the rather unorthodox formulation of not a spokesperson for Let's Greensill, but rather a spokesperson for the Greensill family responding to some of our uh, latest allegations.
0: Oh, a spokesperson for the Greensill family?
1: Yes. So, uh, Okay, I, I mean, that. I don't want to embarrass you here, but what does that actually mean? This just means it's not emanating from Greensill Capital as a corporate entity. It's his way of engaging with us without having to imperil the uh, commercial prospects of his bust business. Let's get into
0: now the business of the story which you carried last week, which took the Cameron story that bit significantly further, which is the story really about the very specific lobbying that David Cameron carried out over the course of the last year. So
1: what have we discovered? Cameron was employed by Let's Greensill in 2018. And a lot of the stories so far has focused on the work that the former prime minister did on Greensill's behalf so that it would be included in various Treasury or Bank of England COVID emergency schemes. What we've established now is that Cameron also lobbied for Greensill so that one of his schemes could be rolled out throughout the nation's most beloved institution, the NHS. So for a couple of years, Greensill had been working on a concept which he later called earned, albeit in classic startup fashion. We we lose the E at the end. So it's just E-A-R-N followed by D. And the principle of EARN was that it would provide early payments on people's salaries before their eventual payday. So, you know, rather than having to wait a month to get your pay packet, if you signed up to EARN, the principle was that you would be able to literally get paid every single day if you wanted. And, you know, if it worked, you get paid every week. Greensill, as we've explored over the past two podcasts had a real penchant for using the private sector to promote his wares. He liked the patina of of officialdom and establishment credibility. He used things which he'd rolled out in the private sector to market riskier projects and programs elsewhere. Greensill was looking to roll out his earned pay scheme to one of the
0: world's biggest workforces, the NHS, with its 1.3 million
1: employees. There was a difference here, and it's important for legal and also factual uh, reasons to enumerate, which was, as opposed to the normal earned model in which, for instance, in the private sector, Greensill would take a cut or take a fee from a private company in order to pay its workers more quickly, in this instance, Greensill's proposal was that he would do it for free. Now, there are various reasons why he might have done this, and it depends probably on how cynical and or credulous you are. Some people say the reason he did it for free was that in that no money was changing hands per se, he wouldn't need to get contracts or go through the normal tender processes. So, you know, in offering what he dubbed to be a free service, he didn't have to go through the kind of normal complications of entering into agreements with trusts and the NHS and such like. But it was also a very effective form of branding. I mean, Though Greensill had been lobbying for this and strategizing this for a while, about a month into lockdown, he did this interview on Sky News with Ian King. What we've seen, though, of course, is with the arrival of COVID-19, there is a need to help those frontline staff, the nurses, the janitors, porters, doctors
0: in our National Health Service who are protecting our country.
1: It was... I think four weeks into national lockdown, Boris Johnson was still convalescing at Chequers. And the previous day, Pratt, the coffee chain, had said that it would give out free hot drinks to all NHS workers. And Greenfield, he actually did this interview in College Green, so backing onto the Palace of Westminster, where parliamentarians tend to be interviewed. He looked like a parliamentarian. He sounded like what he was wearing his suit. He said, What I'm delighted to be able to announce today is that we're working with more than half a dozen national health trusts, across our country to ensure that frontline staff are able to get paid every day and they're able to get paid every day completely for free, both free for employees and for the National Health Service. In a way, Ian, it's our free cup of tea. We are offering our little bit to the NHS and we're going to help them in a way that Pret is too. I don't want to ruin the ending, but I'll briefly say that incredibly small numbers of people ended up signing up to this, which sort of affirms in the eyes of many of our sources the reality which was that the scheme was mainly there to goldplate his CV as he took the idea to organisations and employers which would pay. But there is a fascinating story in how Greensill managed, using Cameron's help, to sign up partnerships that did despite low uptake, give them access to almost half a million NHS employees? We had left this originally
0: with, after we'd got through the business of David Cameron texting Rishi Sunak to get assistance for Greensill much more recently. We came at this originally through what it was that Greensill had managed to sell when he was actually in Whitehall, which was the pharmacy's payment scheme, which later ended up being administered by his company once he'd left. Now you have this much Bigger thought, but this much bigger thought, as you're describing it, is essentially a loss leader. In other words, it's a branding exercise which will make him look very good, but won't necessarily make him a lot of money, but also make him a hell of a lot of contacts. And he can then use that to convince all kinds of other people that they actually should use his business in a way that may be more lucrative for
1: him. You know, the pharmacy scheme was not the only idea he was passionate about, it just happened to be the only one that he. Managed to get through Whitehall after visiting eleven different departments, um, and similarly, the NHS was something which he thought you know, would plate his reputation, would let him embed himself in the public sector. You know, I'm not claiming that he would have done this, but there's every chance if he rolled out a free service, he would be able to advertise, you know, add-ons or other monetizable features. It was a kind of blueprint for a wider process of, you know, Greenfield bringing supply chain finance to the masses and. You know, the NHS, we often like to think that it's kind of completely walled off from privatisation, that its workers and patients are protected from that sort of thing. But if you know what you're doing, there are much easier ways in than competing for months or years to provide a contract in full view and, you know, full transparency. For instance, this becomes important in the case of Greensill, there are lots of sort of semi-private bodies that are affiliated to or part owned by the NHS or Department of Health that by virtue of not being government bodies just don't have to engage in the same processes as everybody else. And now if you employ people who've been at the highest levels of government, as Greensill did, you know exactly how to exploit these different bureaucracies. This is the
0: point at which we're going to introduce another character in the Cameron Greensill orbit. Bill Crothers, the former chief commercial officer for the government. Crothers was working in this role until 2015, before becoming a director of Greensill's company in 2016. He had, though, spent time as an advisor for Greensill before even he left his government role, something which has raised more
1: than eyebrows. Bill Crothers was the head of procurement for the British state, responsible for a budget of billions and billions a year. Crothers' old job was getting private sector companies to do work for government, went from gamekeeper to poacher and was sort of the tip of the spear as Greensill pitched his idea to the NHS. And I, you know, gather that it was Crothers who persuaded Greensill to form a partnership with this organisation called NHS SBS nhs shared business services it sounds like it's part of the nhs it's actually not it's half owned by matt hancock's department half owned by a french it company and because it's private you don't need to go through the normal uh, procurement procedures with them and you know this ended up being a kind of centerpiece of this grand project to embed themselves um into the nhs and get access to lots of employees and their data. And, you know, they had help from others along the way, not only Cameron, but also Matt Hancock, the health secretary who they secretly met. It it attests to the guile and the Rolodex of Let's Greensill that this ever got off the ground.
0: But two of the most important elements of his approach are two people. Bill Crothers, who has worked simultaneously for Greensill and in the cabinet office before then going on to work for Greensill and never having to declare it to the Business Appointments Committee because of a kind of sleight of hand and the former Prime Minister, David Cameron. So they're both out there drumming up the business for and lobbying on behalf of Greensill. Was Arthur still working for Seal last year when this approach for earned
1: reached its uh, height? He was. I mean, his own indiscretion is part of why I landed this story, because he just told so many people, it seems, that they dealt with Matt Hancock. And it transpires that despite his reputation for name dropping and for occasionally overstating things, that was actually accurate. He was at the heart of it all. In fact, in this email that I've been leaked from Cameron himself to a senior Department of Health official, He mentions Crothers and effectively says, you know, I'm not really the details guy on this. What you should really do is speak to Bill. He says to Matthew Gould, the head of NHSX, which is the health services digital arm, that he would like to introduce you to Bill Crothers, a fellow board member, a member of the exec team. Bill worked in the cabinet office during the coalition years, leading the government's procurement and commercial agenda. He also tells me, you each received your CBs at the same investiture, exclamation mark. CBEs, I think being shorthand for CBEs, basically saying, you you might have met this guy at Buckingham Palace once. He really knows what he's talking about. Why don't you have a chat with him? This is really important, it seems to me, because essentially
0: what Cameron is saying is, look, this is so good and so kosher, it's even got a guy who used to work in the Cabinet office doing it. And he got his CBE just like you did so he's so he's a really great guy and we're really we're really gold-plated
1: that's essentially what that says it is i mean it's the classic hallmark of lobbying it's basically saying you kind of know this guy or you may as well know this guy and trust me he's a really good chap and therefore could you accord him some time and potentially some help which others might not be afforded themselves it is it is really important i mean you know there's a lot of detail in this email which is the sort of chumminess that is really kind of vivid and which a lot of people picked up on i mean not only by the way the cbe reference but Cameron ends it with once this pandemic is all over it would be great to get lunch stay in touch a former prime minister saying let's get lunch after saying please can you talk to my colleague and also please can you help us get data there's a power dynamic over there and I think anybody um, who studied this stuff knows exactly what's taking place.
0: Yeah. Now, I have to say that I know Matthew Gould personally, and he seems to reply, I'll think about it very seriously, I'll put the team onto it, and so on. What happens after that? Does anything happen as a result of that, or is that the end of that
1: exchange? I mean, I don't think that Gould does anything, uh, as you say, that is wildly surprising. I mean, he does say that we know Greensill have been supporters of their offer for the NHS, which I will say doesn't seem to be consistent with what the government's saying now. And he says he'd love lunch post-COVID. That would be an excellent quote. I've not seen every single email, so I don't know exactly what the chain of events was, but their request was directly passed on to an organisation which it eventually ended up entering into some kind of commercial agreement with. So you might say that they were given introductions and you know passed on to people who ordinarily probably respond to requests from people who have forced to come via the front door coming up did earned help greensill earn
0: get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with the times and the sunday times subscribe today and enjoy one month free visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times
1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: In goes Cameron, all these connections, Crothers is there and so on. And they're trying to get this app earned, used throughout the NHS. Now, what actually happens with that?
1: I spent... Weeks and weeks trying to find out what exactly did happen, because there are some very kind of gushing testimonies on the website of the NHS about how great this scheme is. You know, the head of the Royal Free, one of the biggest trusts in London, probably in the UK, even was quoted in one magazine as saying, why wouldn't you use this? I mean, there are a lot of big people in the NHS who lent a lot of weight and credibility to this scheme. And a lot of introductions were made by people connected to Greensill. In fact, um, one of them was Dido Harding. She passed Greensill on to Sir Jim Mackey, who is a uh, major trust leader in Northumbria. Dido Harding, who later turns up in charge of the government's test and trace policy. That's right. So, in effect, the strategy was to use connections to try and get access to data and trusts which were otherwise quite closed off from the private sector, rather than going centrally via the NHS, they partnered with individual trusts who you know might have been slightly more vulnerable to pressure and lobbying, but also in whose gift it was to sign up to these schemes. And it's almost easier to get the Royal Free to sign up its ten thousand employees or make it available to its 10,000 employees and try and get the NHS to do it in one foul sweep. And so eventually, Greensill signed partnerships that made its earned app available to around half a million people. It did a pilot in numerous trusts, ranging from Salford to Essex to North London. And in the end, the biggest partnership was this one with NHS Shared Business Services, which provides a lot of back-end payroll Tech for the NHS. And they admitted to me last week that, again, despite all these endorsements, I think even NHS SBS, which has the NHS in its logo and looks very official, I think even they put up this tweet uh, of the cartoon monkey, I think eating peanuts, saying, if you don't sign up to earn your nuts or something like this. But really? they have now admitted that despite providing access through their own organization to around 450,000 people, I think 425 signed up through them, and only a few thousand, max, were ever signed up at all. Nevertheless, Greensill Capital, in kind of paid-for advertorials, claimed that they were helping tens of thousands of people through this scheme. In fact, there was this quite amusing conversation with a unnamed representative of Greensill Capital last week, who said that they did help tens of thousands of people by making this offer available. I said, well, no, I mean, if they didn't sign up to it, you didn't help them. And this person was saying, well, no, 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 we we did help them because they could have had it. And this seems kind of conspicuously similar to me, to the pharmacy scheme, which never ended up being widely taken up, which all the kind of representative body said was actually unnecessary and could have just been solved by better HR functions and better payment systems, and yet which nevertheless was kind of front and centre, as Greensill told the world about all the benevolent work he was doing and raised money for much riskier projects and loans.
0: It gets to be a familiar pattern, this, doesn't it, really? Which is that firstly, and obviously, he's got these people working for him who seem to be representatives of the most upright parts of the establishment, saying, this is a wonderful thing, etc. You should all do this. Hey, have you seen this? And so on. The second thing he has going for him is that there is a facile uh, attractiveness to this product. They quite like the kind of whizziness and glitziness of it. And the third thing that it seems to have in common is
1: that in practice, nobody much does it. That's quite right. I mean, as well as hiring Cameron and Crothers, Greensill also brought on various star characters to the earned advisory board, including Lord Hogan Howe, the former Met Commissioner, Lord Blunkett, the former Home Secretary, and Dame Casey, the first Victims Commissioner. It was this kind of glittering array of eminent and respected people who, as you note, were deployed to help eventuate a scheme which nobody or at least very few people ended up being particularly interested in but nevertheless played quite an outside role in Greensill's own publicity material I genuinely get the impression he was gutted that this scheme imploded and you know I think part of the reason his family spokesperson took the unusual step of giving me an on-the-record response this weekend was because Greensill really felt personally that he wanted to convey his regret that didn't end up working but Consciously or unconsciously, you know, the way Greensall worked was he put all of these snazzy, whizzy, positive-sounding schemes at the front of his brochures and CV, and what took a backseat was the business which ended up playing a disproportionately large role in his empire, namely his toxic loans, which now imperiled the jobs of 55,000 people.
0: failing to be widely taken up. Earned went into administration last month, owing millions of pounds, including sums to various NHS commercial
1: partners and NHS bodies. In order to get Earned off the ground, it paid various NHS bodies or NHS-affiliated organisations money for the services including kind of data software and infrastructure that would allow it to access central staff records, uh, all the way to branding and getting the earned name at conference stalls and in brochures, it never ended up paying large amounts of that money. So this kind of wonderful scheme has ultimately, having I mean, helped tiny, tiny numbers of people in the context of the NHS overall, ended up costing the taxpayer money. And for those geeks so inclined, the details there to see on page 24 of earned insolvency documents and you can see the list of creditors the list of people who are still owed money Bind, and it has now been bought by a commercial competitor but i think that's the australian branch i'm not sure what has happened to the uk entity
0: So in a way, this is almost, and I use my words quite carefully, a reputational Ponzi scheme. It's not a financial Ponzi scheme, but it is based on the inflation of reputation and contacts in order to make the whole thing have an existence, which actually materially it probably doesn't. My next question is this, Gabriel. If Greensill hadn't gone bust, would
1: we actually know any of this? It's a brilliant question, and I'm going to say I don't think so. I think that this is kind of shined a light on, it's almost like less than 1% of the reality of lobbying in our country and the reality of how Whitehall and how Westminster and how politics works. This scandal is kind of interesting and distinct for a number of reasons, but one of the most significant is that Cameron um, is not unusual of being a lobbyist. He just got caught. And he also got caught in the context of a company whose demise is going to be so profoundly damaging for so many people. As the Greensill affair continues to unfold,
0: a number of inquiries have been launched into not just Cameron's involvement, but lobbying more widely. So, look forward to the Boardman Inquiry, to the Cabinet Office review of the Lobbying Act, to the Simon Case review of Civil Service Second Jobs... To a Treasury Select Committee inquiry, a Public Accounts Committee inquiry, a Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee inquiry, an inquiry by the Committee on Standards in Public Life, and an inquiry by the National Audit Office. Now, I'm going to test you. Maybe not. Each will look into different elements of the affair and have different remits, but we still don't know which will call David Cameron to appear before them and if they do, whether it will happen in public. For Gabriel, this isn't quite a hark back to the days of what Labour call Tory
1: sleaze. I've tweeted this and I've said it, and I will keep saying it. I think that Labour are obviously within their right to make this about cronyism, and, you know, there's definitely an extent to which that is part of this story. I just don't think it is the whole story, and it also, frankly, doesn't fit the template of... Rubby Tory lobbyists contacting Tory ministers asking for help for Tory friends. I mean, actually, part of what is so striking about this is the way the civil service comes out of it. You know, if you certainly look at the first phase of Greensill's time in Whitehall, that was a civil servant who was lionised in the form of Jeremy Hayward, bringing Greensill in, who then went on to frustrate ministers and fellow civil servants. So, you know, it's not as simple as Tories who were corrupt, enfeebling Infantilizing, undermining, courageous, unimpeachable officials. You know, this is a kind of a a monster story and its implications for various different organisations. And this is becoming toxic for the government. It's probably part of why they activated half these inquiries. You know, a month ago, it was just about a former PM who Boris has successfully repudiated and distanced himself from in the form of his premiership so far. But when you get Hancock and Sunak involved... Um it starts to become a lot more perilous. And that says nothing of the thousands of jobs at risk in the steel industry, thanks to Sudak as well. Finally,
0: more to come this week. Gabriel, or are you going to take a weekend off?
1: <laughs> I'm hoping to take a weekend off. I got very lucky for, for five weeks, but I think I'm going to hammer out my diary and then maybe run for the hills. So we'll see, is what I would say. But my colleague, John Collingridge, isn't going anywhere. So do read the business pages at the very least this weekend. And also, David Cameron, if you want to talk to anyone and get it all off your chest, Gabriel will pick up the phone to you. I will. It's true. It's true, Dave. I'm I'm here. I'm here when you need me.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Whitehall correspondent for The Sunday Times, Gabriel Pogrand. You can read all of Gabriel's reporting on this story at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Gareth Isles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, possibly an idea for a future episode or just thoughts on what you've heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk.